Thanks for joining us for the Cybersecurity Podcast. I'm Peter Singer, Strategist and Senior Fellow at New America. And I'm Sarah Sorcher, Deputy Editor of Passcode, the Christian Science Monitor's news section on security and privacy in the digital age. We think the most important and most interesting part of the cybersecurity story is the people behind the keyboard. On the Cybersecurity Podcast, we'll interview key leaders and thinkers in the field going beyond the headlines to talk about some of the most pressing trends and newest ideas. First, we'd like to thank Arizona State University for sponsoring this episode. In a few minutes, we'll hear from Dan Kaufman. He's director of DARPA's Information Innovation Office. That's the part of the Pentagon's futuristic research arm that's focusing on developing new technologies for cyberspace. One of the things that DARPA helped uh, develop is this very thing called cyberspace that's bringing us all together here. We have Sarah in D.C. I'm in Newport, Rhode Island right now up at the U.S. Naval War College where I'm talking about cybersecurity in my new book. And finally, joining us from the U.K. is Corey Doctorow. He's one of the most innovative minds in our field who very much defines the concept of multitasker. He's a journalist, he's a science fiction author, he's a blogger, he's co-editor of Boing Boing, and so on. Thank you for joining us, Corey. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Now, Corey, you cover so many different topics in your writing that link into this space, whether it's surveillance issues, IP questions, electronic freedom, techno-utopianism, and your byline might appear in anything from Boing Boing to a novel to a newspaper column. So I thought it'd be interesting to start by just asking, what's your process? How do you go about picking the topics that you're going to explore? And then how do you decide the form and the format of it? So in some ways, it's all centered on blogging. Every time something that seems like it's interesting enough to warrant examination crosses over my transom, I write a blog post about it. And the rigor of having to explain why something is interesting to a notional stranger means that I have to explain it well enough that I can remember it myself and that it it kind of goes into the hopper. And it turns my subconscious into a kind of super saturated solution of idea fragments. And every once in a while, a couple of them will bang together and nucleate and out will fall a story or a column or a novel. Oftentimes, there's a, a happy accident. So I'll be working on Uh, I'll have some ideas that I've jotted notes for, and then someone will ask me if I can write something about a certain subject, and I'll look at the two of them and realize that there's a connection that I hadn't thought about before. It's not super premeditated. I do, as every columnist does, I do have a file of of non-time-related, non-news hook column ideas, and anytime there isn't something in the news that warrants a column, I, I write one of those. And I've usually got four or five of those that have come to me in the shower or on a long walk or whatever. <laughs> yeah, I also find the crossover interesting. I mean, you're both writers who've decided to work in nonfiction and fiction in this space. Corey, you have books, you know, such as your best-selling novel, Little Brother, about kids fighting against a surveillance state. And Peter, you have Ghost Fleet, which is coming out pretty soon on June 30th, I believe, looking at you know war in, 20, in the 2020s and what that might look like. So you know, let's hear from each of you. Why fiction and what can people learn about uh, the time that we live in in this space from, from fiction writing? Well, I think that, you know, what fiction can do is be at its best a kind of design fiction. It it can give you an emotional fly through through an idea in the same way that an architect can give you a three dimensional fly through through a building. Hmm. Uh, It's not that it predicts the future, but it helps you inhabit some of the kind of emotional space that the future might occupy. 
so, you know, I've, I wrote some design fiction for Intel about the end of passwords called Knights of the Rainbow Table about okay. uh, about people who figure out how to kill passwords so that there is no effective way to use passwords to authenticate yourself to sensitive web services, but they don't have a way to make it better. And so they invent a kind of chivalry, uh, a chivalric code where they go around using this power that they've created for themselves for good, but they get a comeuppance. And it's about understanding kind of how it might feel to realize that passwords are dead and to realize that um, you don't have anything to replace them with. For me, I think uh, that kind of emotional storytelling, that, that thing that's inside someone's head, is a really important part of how we think about technology. You know, if you think about Orwell and the surveillance debate, if it was 1947 and you were saying, you know, I don't know why you think we shouldn't spend the peace dividend putting cameras everywhere, that would be awesome. Didn't you ever read the Sermon on the Mount? You know, his eye is on the sparrow, right? Like, we can be men as gods and we'll see all the malfeasance and we'll punish it accordingly. And at the time, all of your arguments about it would be kind of emotional and dry arguments. But once... 1948's rolled around and Orwell's published 1984, you can say, I don't like your idea because it's Orwellian. And you get to import the whole narrative with just that one word. Peter, what do you think about this? I mean, your book is filled with footnotes from situations that have already happened. And it's at the same time, this narrative of what the future war could look like in you know, World War III. So tell me a little bit about how you came to that structure. And what do you think that that's going to say about the actual future of war? Well, so the book is a bit of a smash-up between fiction and, and nonfiction in that it is a, it's a novel, it's a techno-thriller, but as you mentioned, it's got 400 footnotes to document how every single technology, every single trend, even how some of the quotes in it are drawn from the real world. So it's, a, it's trying to play in both. And for me, the choice to go this route with fiction was that it can be a powerful tool, and, and history shows that. In fiction, you can, you can move the dial forward. You can explore the what-ifs. You can envision future worlds and new kind of detail and explore uh, potential pathways in a way that's sometimes difficult in nonfiction. Uh, you know, a great illustration of that would be H.G. Wells and um, how he envisioned a world of what he called the atomic bomb and how it might be different. Or for me, we're looking at this brewing proto-Cold War between the U.S. Mm. and China and Russia. I mean, that's everything from, you know, NATO's on its highest level of alert since the 1980s to China's uh, and the U.S. are engaged in an arms race. So the question was for me, okay, let's dial that forward. Let's look at, you know, if China's on pace, according to um, the U.S. Navy, to match it by 2030, what would that world look like? Or, you know, we work in the world of cybersecurity. We see the word cyber war used to describe all sorts of things from stealing social security numbers to stealing Hollywood scripts. Right. Well, no, what would real cyber war look like? What would the players do? I think fiction can also help you... Um, it can aid in, in truth-telling. Sometimes topics are too controversial to touch for many in a nonfiction setting. I think um, a future war is along those lines. No one wants it, but it has to be weighed now as a real risk. Another would be, and I think this echoes what Corey was saying, fiction allows you to hit core human themes and maybe along the way tell the better story, not just in more engaging, but maybe even more truthful 
than um, sometimes nonfiction can do. So I think of, for example, Herman Wouk's um, Winds of War is arguably a better telling of World War II than some of the best histories. Um, and, you know, final thing, let's be honest about it, is distribution. You may not be surprised by this, Sarah, because you, you, know, you work in this space, but very powerful people, including in places like the Pentagon, are often more likely to read a novel than, um, it shames me to say, a think tank edited volume. <laughs> in the cyber war and cyber espionage space, some of the stuff that's happening now almost sounds like it's straight out of science fiction already. I mean, you have the you mentioned Sony Pictures, and that's, you know, it's it's a very interesting case, you know, blaming North Korea. But then you also have the Office of Personnel Management, a breach where reports now say it could affect as many as 14 million people, very, you know, exposing very personal info about security clearance applications, not just social security numbers, but people's relatives, people's contacts, their drug and alcohol use. I mean, that conceivably could give a foreign government a way to blackmail or impersonate or otherwise exploit employees to steal secrets or get entry to government computer networks. So I guess, Corey, what do you think? Is this scenario realistic for people to start using these tools to actually launch into more of a you know concerted campaign or cyber war in the future? Well, you know, I, I think the most interesting thing about what APTs do, what advanced persistent threats like, like governments and state actors do, right. is not what they might do with it. Because, you know, states generally have a, uh, a reasonable amount of adult supervision, maybe North Korea notwithstanding. And they they tend to act in ways, even when they're engaged in espionage, they tend to act in ways that are um, engaged with and protective of the status quo. It's, you know, that's like, you don't have a state anymore if you don't have the status quo. What's interesting for me is that yesterday's APT attacks are tomorrow's script kitty attacks. Hmm. So I'm, I'm way more interested in what happens when Stuxnet is like rolled into a Vuln exploiting toolkit and with 15 minutes worth of, you know, jiggery pokery, you can roll your own Stuxnet light or your own bad USB than I am in what, you know, some some spook with Tom Clancy delusions does with <laughs> right. this stuff. You know, some of these questions for the future could shape the future of the internet. And you've been very passionate about this topic in both your fiction and your commentary. And government policy could really play a role in in what that is. I mean, you talk about adult supervision, but you have governments talking about building backdoors to access data on encrypted devices or countries controlling what data is stored or flowing into their border. So what worries you most about some of these government policies and government actions that we're seeing lately? There's the one that I'm working on. Uh, which is not because I think it's the most urgent, but because it's, I think, the one that I can do something about, which is uh, the DMCA Section 1201. This 1998 law called the Digital Millennium Copyright Act has uh, lots and lots of complicated features to it, but one of them is this prohibition in Section 1201 on circumventing effective means of access controls that restrict copyrighted works. And what that means is it's against the law to break copyright locks. And historically, that's been a bad idea for uh, lots of reasons to do with consumers and with artists. So as, as a, someone who's bought a lot of DVDs, I, if I want to watch them on my phone, I'm expected to buy them again, not because ripping DVDs is illegal, but because breaking a lock is illegal and you can't rip a DVD without breaking a lock. And so that's manifestly unfair. It's just a way of extracting rent from me. But from so a security... So what's at stake there for security? Well, from a security perspective, this has um, ballooned in the last several years 
as works that are covered by the DMCA have expanded into machines that we live inside of and machines that we put inside of our bodies. So these days, the DMCA covers the firmware locks on your tractor, on your smart thermostat, on the uh, camera and uh, microphone equipped set-top box in your living room, on the uh, on your phone, which uh, you carry with you all the time and knows who all your friends are and everything you say to them and has all your auth credentials and the camera and the microphone on it, you have to take the phone's word for it that they're switched off when you take it into the bedroom and the toilet. And the DMCA has expanded to cover all of those and manufacturers in all of those domains have begun to uh, use digital locks not to protect copyright, but to extract additional rent. So they, they make it illegal to jailbreak your phone, to buy software from a third party that they haven't authorized, or to jailbreak your thermostat to uh, allow you to turn it back down again when the power company turns, it, turns your air conditioning up, or to jailbreak your car so that you can buy parts from third parties. And again, that's a consumer rights issue, but the real problem is that the DMCA, in order to achieve this prohibition on jailbreaking also criminalizes with penalties of up to five years in prison disclosing information about vulnerabilities in those devices because you could use that to affect your jailbreak. And so these devices become kind of festering reservoirs of long live digital pathogens that are illegal to report and researchers who discover them are chilled from speaking about them. And this is a terrible thing. I mean, it was a bad idea when this was about, you know, your laptop and your, your digital entertainment center, but it's a, an existential threat to the human race when it's about your car and your house. Mm, mm. One of the things that's interesting about that is how it's a concern that connects so many different levels. Um, so you know, all you could say, describe as existential, but basically it connects everything from geopolitics, national security, business operations, all the way down to personal concerns of privacy and surveillance. And that's been a theme that, at least as a reader, I've noticed in a lot of your work on you know both the nonfiction but also the fiction side, you know, and, and works like Little Brother or Homeland, is these issues of how uh, technology, surveillance, civil liberties all become woven together. And one of the things that, that was equally uh, struck me was that sort of personified the Snowden debate. And, oh, by the way, the documentary, um, the Snowden documentary showed that he had a certain book with him, your novel. So we have these sort of these circles connecting in lots of different ways. So the question I'd like to pose to you is, one, where do you stand on this debate that he's provoked? Where do you think it is right now? Where do you see it go ahead and do next? I, I think that, you know, the major effect of Snowden hasn't been to end surveillance. That, that seems really visible and obvious. But what I think Snowden has done is he has sent us into peak indifference to surveillance. Mm. Like there will never be a time in the future in which more in which fewer people are worried about this surveillance question, right? It, it, this is this is only going to grow from now on, not least because privacy breaches, like the one you were talking about earlier, mm -hmm. are only going to multiply. And so there's going to be people who are more and more concerned about the destiny of their personally identifying and compromising information. And then more broadly, is there something bigger going on here where we're looking at all of these novels, films, art shows, that are, are they some kind of reflection of the surveillance state? Is there a, a, a literature or art that's starting to play out in this space as well? 
You know, I think that there's this conceit that science fiction writers can predict the future, and I actually think that's dead wrong. I think that science fiction writers who think that they can predict the future are like drug dealers who sample their own product. It just never comes out well. <laughs> but what I think science fiction writers do is they act in a system with readers, with the with the public, with our culture, to reflect back our, our deepest held anxieties and aspirations about the present. And so all of the futures that science fiction writers imagine go out there into the world, and then some of them resonate. Some of them become, you know, au courant. They become, they become like, we can shorthand our future by talking about them. We, we take the word cyberspace out of William Gibson's fiction, and we apply it, and it becomes this prefix that goes into everything, cyber war and, and so on. And it's not because Bill predicted the future. If you ask Bill, he'll say, God, no, I've, I've never predicted the future and I hope I never do. It's because it's a kind of Ouija board where if you, if with all of our fingers on the planchette, our subconscious is guiding it towards Neuromancer and saying, this reflects the stuff that we're worried about and hoping for right now. And that's, that's the relationship. So I want to go back to peak indifference for a second. I mean, what don't you think that people understand about the surveillance that's going on now? I mean, I'm sure we've all seen the the John Oliver piece where, you know, he asks people on the street if they've heard of Edward Snowden, and a lot of them have no idea who he is, but they understand the impact when it's made very personal to them, I guess Jeff will say. So, I mean, what what's lacking in the discourse here, and um, what do you think is going to change in the future? I wonder, I wonder, uh, I think the John Oliver piece was amazing, where he went around Times Square and he said to people, you know, do you care about privacy? Do you care about surveillance? Have you heard of Ed Snowden? What do you think the NSA is doing? And none of them really knew or cared. And then he said, what would you do if I told you that there was a program the U.S. government operated where every time you sent someone a picture of your genitals, the U.S. government got a copy of it? And they all went bananas. Yeah, and no they, one was happy about that. <laughs> and and it seemed really clear that everyone got it. And And so... I think Snowden correctly assessed his capacity to convey to the wider public the significance of the story as being pretty low, right? It's not his core competence. He's a, a, a would-be special forces soldier who, after breaking both of his legs, became a spook and a gifted sysadmin, but he's not a media specialist. And so that's why he worked with, with media outlets to try and make the message bigger and wider. And it's true that there are uh, lots of people for whom this issue is quite distant. I was actually just re reading uh, reports of a series of focus groups on this, and, and they, they're vague on the questions. But what they are very sharp on is not wanting to have a breach result in uh, personal liability mm -hmm. and not wanting to have bad information in a database or bad inferences in a database reflect badly on their financial life and their personal lives. Everybody gets that the story of Brazil, the Terry Gilliam movie, is is you know almost a documentary at this point. That the wrong character on a on a printout can put you on a no fly list. That the bad data can deny you credit and mean that you can't get a house or that your house costs more because you have to take out a subprime loan. That all of these things kind of redound through the system. We all know that, and everybody is worried about corporate surveillance. There's there's a lot more worry about corporate surveillance now than than there was a few years ago. 
even if they're sanguine about state surveillance. And what I'm waiting for is for them to make the connection that the reason the state is able to conduct such mass scale surveillance is because the private sector is paying most of the bills by offering services into which our data is collected. That that they're that they're setting up the thing that gives the the um, the state its two or three order of magnitude lift in surveillance efficiency, and that you can't expect the state to curtail private surveillance at the same time as it's totally dependent on it to affect surveillance that it views as um, absolutely critical to its ongoing operation. So, Corey, you're both a Canadian native, but you now live in the UK. Do you see a kind of cultural difference in how people in Europe or Canada are viewing privacy and security versus how Americans are talking about it? If there's like one major difference in the political scene in the UK, it's that on the political right, there is very little by way of suspicion of authority. So in the US, there is this huge streak in the political right that is extremely anti-authoritarian. And it and the political left meet in the anti-authoritarian dimension. Uh, There are elements of the political left and elements of the political right that can form coalition. And you saw that in the sunsetting of 215, where you had extremely ideological people from uh, both sides of the house co-leading the fight to sunset 215. And um, that isn't here. And so in the UK, although there's a lot of public concern about surveillance, politically, it doesn't get nearly so far because it's all of the pushes from the left, and the left is divided on it as it is in the in the U.S., where there are Dems that are extremely pro-surveillance and Dems that are anti-surveillance. And without a, a right-wing block that's also anti-surveillance, the the left-wing block that's anti-surveillance in the U.K. has no natural allies to form with. Uh, you know, the, the U.K. Labour Party invented the surveillance state. I mean, the Tories subsequently perfected it, seems like the debate differences might not be just geographical, but also maybe generational. I mean, something that I hear all the time is, oh, young people just don't care about their privacy anymore. They put all of this information online and the Snapchats and, you know, whatever. I mean, do you think that that's true? And do you think that what is going to be needed to change young people's attitudes, if so, to get out of this phase of peak indifference that you're talking about? So I actually think that's manifestly wrong and and also really corrosive. And it ties into the whole idea of digital nativism, which I think is also completely wrong and and obviously wrong. I mean, we haven't had sunspots since the year 2000. That means that if you're born in this millennium, you magically know what the Internet is for. And when you see people who are, you know, sort of under the age of 20 who are doing things on the Internet that on their face seem kind of dumb and poorly thought out, It does them no service to assume that rather than making mistakes just as teenagers have done since teenagehood became a thing, they are instead leading the way to some kind of mystical deeper truth. You know, I think that like as between the two explanations that when young people make dumb decisions about privacy, it's because they're young and they're making mistakes through trial and error and that young people just understand everything a priori. Trial and error seems like a much more probable uh, explanation. And, And what's more, if you look closely at young people's behavior, you see an intense interest in their privacy. It's just an erroneous interest in their privacy. So young people go to tremendous pains to keep their parents, their teachers, classmates with whom they're on the outs, potential romantic interests from seeing their private information. Uh, Dana Boyd, whose book It's Complicated came out from Yale Press last year, did 15 years of anthropological work studying marginalized young people and how they use networks. And she documents this over and over again. 
they have misapprehended the people that they need long-term privacy from. It's not their parents and it's not their teachers. It's future employers. It's future identity thieves. It's the state and given their relationship to it in the future. And they're oblivious to it because they haven't yet made those mistakes and learned from them. After all, privacy is one of those things where you make a mistake and then the impact of that mistake doesn't come yeah. and bite you in the bum for 10 years. So how do people get better at it? There's also the the fact that young people are more likely to touch shift, change the privacy settings on, for example, social mm-hmm. media than older generation is. It shows there's an awareness and, and a, a perception of this out there. But, um, Corey, we, we could talk all day on these issues. It's been utterly fascinating. We really do appreciate you joining us. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. In a few minutes, we'll hear from DARPA's Dan Kaufman. But first, a word from our sponsor. In 2015, U.S. News and World Report ranked Arizona State University as, quote, the second most innovative university in the nation. That innovation is clear in ASU's approach to real-world challenges like cybersecurity. As part of the university's Global Security Initiative, the ASU Center for Cybersecurity and Digital Forensics approaches the, quote, wicked problems of cybersecurity by bringing together collaborative research teams of world-renowned experts across academic disciplines to design solutions for industry and government. Here's Nadia Bliss, director of ASU's Global Security Initiative, talking about how ASU thinks about wicked problems like cybersecurity. One of the attributes of wicked problems is uh, very likely there isn't a particular solution that completely resolves it. So if you think about cybersecurity, it's not something that perpetually would go away. So you can't make a completely secure, completely resilient system. The challenges that we face as a nation, as the world, require these interdisciplinary approaches. So you can't really address a wicked problem with a single discipline. I think basically, regardless of what domain, discipline, or wicked area, whether it's pandemics, climate impact, identity, privacy, potential political instability, cyber, cyber identity propagates it all. So it's an incredibly important space to look at holistically because it affects us all holistically. Find ASU's Global Security Initiative online at globalsecurity.asu.edu. Up next, we have our interview with Dan Kaufman, better known as DARPA Dan. He's the director of DARPA's Information Innovation Office. Later this month, DARPA Dan will probably have to find a new nickname because he's headed to the private sector. He's going to be deputy director of Google's Advanced Technology and Projects Group. That's Google's research and development lab focused on creating next-generation mobile devices and services. For now, though, we interviewed him about the moonshot projects his agency is working on that almost sound like science fiction and ways that DARPA is thinking about cybersecurity way out into the future. Thanks so much for being here. Happy to be really here. Happy to have you. Yeah. And so, why don't we talk a little bit about what is DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency? Give us a little bit of an overview of DARPA and your job. Yeah, sure. So, uh, DARPA is uh, part of the Department of Defense. We're a large uh, research agency. Uh, I always like to say we're both small and large, so we're quite small in terms of footprint. There's only about 100 technical people there, but we invest $3 billion a year. You know, most people associate us with the internet, but uh, I think we've done a lot more stuff than that. And if you think about self-driving cars, if you think about uh, small form GPS, if you think about stealth, uh, and that's our job. People come to DARPA for four years. 
uh, usually coming out of all places, private industry or uh, academia. You do something amazing to give service back to your country, and then then you go back. Right, and so you also came from the private sector to DARPA. So what, tell us a little bit about your background. Oh, yeah. All right. So my background is very strange. Uh, I started off as, a, as studying computer code. Then I was uh, it got a business law degree and worked in the venture capital world for about six, six and a half years. Did a billion and a half dollars worth of deals, ranging from Cisco to Netscape. And of course, some things that didn't do as well, but I always dropped those out somehow. Then I worked for Microsoft and DreamWorks and helped build the game studio there. We did things like Medal of Honor. And then uh, after that, I t- took my own company and we went from a $3 million debt to a top valuation of $420 million bucks. And then uh, came to DARPA. So how does you know how does a Silicon Valley gaming CEO be, get to DARPA? What's that? You know, what was the decision? What was behind your decision to come? Yeah. So after I had sold the company, I was trying to think about what to do, and uh, you know, nine eleven happened, and it shook me really to my core. I thought I've lived incredibly well off this country, and really, other than vote and pay taxes, I've given nothing back. And I thought if there was a chance to give something back, that would be an, an amazing opportunity. So why don't you take us through a typical day in your job? What is it like to be DARPA Dan? I have like the single greatest job on the planet. So it really, a day is like this. Uh, get up in the morning, uh, you walk through, and the first thing that you notice that you know your day is a little different is you're walking through and there's like guards, right? And, and you'll see like people in military uniform as you right. walk into work. It's Plus your robot in the lobby. Plus our, yes, we have like an eight-foot robot who's just spectacularly cool sitting there. Right. Um, Everyone's going to have a robot in their lobby. Well, it'll protect us in case Terminator ever comes, That's so true. we'll be there. Of course, if you've seen the DARPA robot, you would realize that, you know, infants can crawl away faster than, than it can chase them <laughs> at this point. But we'll get there. And then you come on in, and uh, so often, literally, uh, I'll take you through yesterday. We'll do it. Actually, I guess it was last week. So I'm in the library, and there's one of our program managers, and he's all excited, and he has a little box. And I'm like, oh, you know, what's in the box? He goes, oh, my goodness. We just came up with this amazing new idea of a new way to do a sensor to monitor the brain so that we can actually start to help prosthetics, right? So that you can actually control the stuff. And I'm like, so literally, as I'm going up in the elevator, I'm getting this PhD-level quality talk about prosthetics. Then I get off. Now I'm in my office, and uh, we're working on our programs. And it just it rolls from there. there. You are literally 100 feet away at any time you want from a PhD-level quality lecture on any subject in science imaginable. All you have to do is walk over, give a guy a Starbucks, and he will tell you stuff. <laughs> Sounds pretty cool. So how do you determine what pro- problems to tackle and what gets funded in the end? Yeah, so we go through a sort of a little five-step process. So the first thing is you have to give me a problem. It has to involve national security that I deeply care about. And I always say if you can't explain, if I can't understand the problem, you have the wrong problem, right? So you know, if you want your Humvee to go 5% faster, that's not a DARPA problem. If you want it to run on water, we're in. So step okay. one. Does someone come- actually want to do that? No, but I don't okay. know. I do. Um, <laughs> so step one, go figure, figure out something that's, that's, that's world-changing. Step two, tell me the state of the art because there are brilliant people in the commercial sector. So if this is already going to be worked on or things are doing it, then no. So show me, you cannot be the first person who has thought of this, this, this problem. Step three, give me an existence proof. So even if it's crazy, give me some idea of how we're going to get there. And then four and five, explain to me a schedule and a budget so that I have confidence that we're spending the taxpayer's dollars in a, in a wise way that it's not guaranteed, but at least it's likely to get some result. So DARPA is famous for tackling only DARPA hard problems. So yeah. what is the most DARPA hard problem in cybersecurity today? 
I think we actually make things that are correct uh, so that you don't need to patch them. I think if you could do that so that we don't have to worry anymore about patches and holes, if we could make things that were functionally and provably secure from a mathematical standpoint, that would be spectacular. What is one program that you guys would want to spotlight that's, that's yeah. tackling that problem? So we have a program actually uh, called HACMS, H-A-C-M-S, which is uh, High Assured uh, Cyber Military Systems. But the idea is... Uh, can we, and we're doing this with both an American uh, car manufacturer and also UAVs. And the idea is to rewrite the, what we call the RTOS, which is the operating system for the little computers that run you know, your cars. And the idea is, can I prove to you that the entertainment system will never, st- never uh, communicate to the powertrain? Or you can imagine in a UAV, I want to make sure that no missile would ever go off a UAV without the direct control of the operator and make it so it is quite literally mathematically hack-proof. DARPA is creating programs for the military. But yes. a lot of your technology is going into the private sector. I mean, you have GPS and mm-hmm. Apple Siri, you know, technology behind that, driverless cars. But what is the biggest cybersecurity solution that you're working on right now that you could see being adopted and really useful for the private sector? So I think there are two. Can I cheat and say two? Sure, go All for right. it. So, uh, one is a program of ours called Crash, because if you're going to build a new operating system, what better name than, than, than Crash? But the idea <laughs> is this thing we call uh, code diversity. So one th- question we asked is, why is it that attackers always seem to win, right? You see the targets right. and the Home Depots, right? And the answer, to some degree, lives in the fact that we live in a monoculture, meaning we're all on a Windows box or we're on an Apple box or, or maybe you're sort of in the Android world, but that's it. And when you get to the application layer, meaning running Word or Office or whatnot, then it's, even, it's all the same. So one attack hits hundreds of thousands or millions or tens of millions of boxes. So what if we can make something different like that? Think about the human immune system. The reason we don't all get the same disease is because we're all slightly different. So we entered this idea called code diversity. So the thought is when I go down to download the application, what if the version you get is just slightly different than the version I get? Now, it, you need a special attack for every single version. So no longer does it would one raise the stakes in some ways. It yeah, it harder I, for hackers to attack. I think it would completely discourage them. Now, in all fairness, always understand the enemy always gets another move. So I think I will shut off that avenue. And they're very clever and they're resourceful and they'll go somewhere else. But I think that will have a huge impact. When you're looking ahead five years, ten years, do you think that, you know, you're talking about how the hackers are always going to have another move and they're always going to evolve. And do you think that ultimately will be more secure or are the solutions going to just always be far behind what the threats are? No, I, th- I think we're getting to be more secure, and I think things are getting better. I mean, you, you realize there was a huge open ground for a long time because cybersecurity wasn't of paramount importance, right? The idea of, of more power and more efficiency and more capability was more important. And now that large companies, Apple's, Microsoft's, all these people, are turning their attention to security, I think they're already making life more difficult for the attacker, and hopefully some of the stuff we're building will get incorporated into their products and, and continue to raise the ramp. Yeah, so why do you think that there is increasing awareness? Is it just because of high-profile hacks on you know, Home Depot and Target and all of these, or do you think that people are becoming just more concerned overall about their own personal privacy online? I think it's a little bit of both, right? You know, I remember when I was in uh, university, uh, there was a, we know, I took a class in, in media and reporting. It was fascinating in statistics, which is, I know that's a weird thing. So but maybe you were almost a journalist. No, but I, I was interested <laughs> in the stats behind it. 
Okay. Uh, and, and we noticed all of a sudden that uh, things like, you notice that plane, plane wrecks come in waves, right? We kept seeing all these planes crashing, or, and you read this. And the truth is, actually, if you look at it statistically over time, they're no more frequent. But what happens is one of them, because they're dramatic, catches the attention of the media, and you write a news article. And then the second one, because you have context happen, and so you have a feeling of waves. And I think you're seeing that in cybersecurity. As people are getting aware of these attacks, uh, you start to report them more, and then that, right. that in itself becomes the story. And so I, I, that's my instinct of, of what's happening. I mean, there's another huge trend going on right now, too, with the Internet of Things. I mean, some 50 billion devices are going to be connected to the inter- Internet by 2017, which is not so far away. So, I mean, what's at stake here with all of these devices connected, and what happens if security isn't going to be built in? Yeah, so that's a question we're actually wrestling with, right? And that's one of the reasons for programs like Hackums. I always live in the, in the in-between world, right? You know, it's not the apocalypse. It's not the end of the world. I don't want people to run around and panic. On the other hand, you look at the number of attacks, and you realize that there's usually less security on these devices than there are on your PC because they're smaller and you have less to do. So we are taking a pretty serious look to try to get way out in front of that before it becomes a problem. Because the truth is, we all want the benefits that come from these things, right? I love you know, a self-driving car. Yeah, I'm in. Shoot, just a car that parks itself. I'm in. <laughs> so I want all of that. That sounds great. And But I want to make sure that we're secure. And so that's what we're trying to partner with companies to make sure that we can get you both the benefits you want, and at least with a reasonable level of security. Nothing will ever be perfect, but I think it can be manageable. So do you see this as almost take two on the internet, just that the original internet that you know came into that was not necessarily built with security top of mind. So do you see this playing out differently this time around with Internet of Things? I hope so. I mean, that you know, I, I, you only built to that what you're aware of. Right. Uh, and so I think, uh, you know, we, we have a chance to do it. I, it's not a new Internet, but I think it's definitely, the idea is to make the things that write on top of the Internet more secure. Interesting. So, I mean, the private sector, too, is facing increasingly advanced threats. And so it seems like a lot of the things that you're tackling for cybersecurity for the Pentagon could also be very useful down the line. So what's this public-private relationship like with DARPA? I mean, a lot of the code that you guys have is open source. Absolutely. In fact, we drive it really hard. I think it's important for us to give it back. And it's a great way. I think it can work really well. So take Siri is a really good example, right? Okay. So Siri comes out of my office, but at the time it's called uh, PAL, Personal Assistant That Learns. Siri is an Apple's yeah, voice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we're writing it, and we did it for military purposes, for, to help uh, generals with scheduling and the like. One of the companies that was the original purpose yeah, yeah, yeah. of the program is just for a general to say what's on my schedule for yeah, for later and, today? And, and to do complex tasks like rearrange schedules, move things around, right? Okay. And it was to it was a personal assistant. So they're very busy. They need this. You, you can imagine the <laughs> number of decisions yes. that they make with you know literally thousands of people reporting in. Interesting. Right? So then a small company, a private company, does a spin out that then gets bought by Apple. And what you see is, and it's very important to emphasize, what we got as a consumer of Siri is far more sophisticated, far more product because of all the effort that Apple poured into it. But what becomes beautiful is we showed the possibility, we showed the tech, they build this amazing product, but then it comes back because every man and woman who has an Apple phone now gets Siri. It's now paid for by a private company and it keeps getting improved. So it's this wonderful circle. Self-driving cars are going to work the exact same way. We do the challenge, they get excited, the winner of it, Sebastian Thren, goes to Google, Google starts to build self-driving cars, and that's how we'll all end up with it. So I think it works. When it works well, it works wonderfully. And so something else, too, that's um, been on our radar at Passcode is the Plan X program. And um, that's, 
you know, just uh, as the military is staffing up its cybersecurity personnel, it, you guys are creating essentially an app store for cyber operations and to increase collaboration across the services in cybersecurity. So, I mean, t- can you tell us a little bit about that and how, if you could see that going into the private sector? Yeah, I, well, I think it will at some point, and then I think it's a good thing. The, Plan X really had two goals in mind. The first says, you know, we, we talk in the military, we're going to hire 6,000 cybersecurity experts. Right. That's pretty hard. That's a lot. Yeah, yeah. A lot. And how are you going to scale that up? And we realized one thing the military does better than almost anything I've ever seen is they're incredibly good at training people. They take 18 and 19-year-old men and women, and within 18 months, they've trained them to fly a fighter jet. I mean, that's just remarkable if you think about it. So the thought is, but what's interesting is they probably don't know Bernoulli's principles or how the scram engine worked or how the plane was built, but they can fly the heck out of it. So could we do that for cybersecurity? In other words, can we train you fairly rapidly? You may not be able to write the cyber defenses and the things we're working on, but you can execute. So that was one thing. The second thing was, if the military is going to use cybersecurity at some point, it's it's sort of very difficult to work with because we tend to work as human beings in physical areas. We think about maps. So if you're going to go deal with a country, you, you know, you get a map and you figure out what ground and air and sea looks like, but cyber is invisible. Right. And so part of Plan X was to build a visualization tool so that we can operate better. You can actually think about networks. So I can visualize the network. And we've seen interest in commercial companies who want something similar. And uh, once we get it done and set for national security, I could absolutely see that transitioning to the commercial sector. It'd be great. So people's homes, for instance, could have a system like this to detect cyber threats as they cyber attacks as they come in. Yeah, so that would, you know, that would obviously the way that would happen most likely if it happened would be there'd be some commercial company that would take it and then probably take a fraction of what it is, uh, put it together in a really simple to use box and then sell it out to you through wherever you yeah. want to buy it. So we like to end with uh, the most important question of all, which is, what is your favorite depiction of cybersecurity in fiction? Your favorite is in you think it's spot on, or favorite is in it makes you you know totally cringe and it's totally not right. Oh yeah, so I, you know we have both, right? My favorite, my favorite cringy moment is I always love when the cybersecurity experts there, and they're they're typing frantically, and uh, the boss comes by, and then he sits down on the keyboard with them, and they both start typing because you know you're <laughs> twice as fast. Right. Um, and I always wait for the actual person to go, why are you on my keyboard and what are you possibly doing? Cybersecurity is a team sport. You know? Yeah. Everybody's <laughs> just on the keyboard together. Get off my keyboard. Right. That's what I say. Okay. And so any, any favorite, anything that you, any old classic that you Friday nights you go and you turn on, you watch your cybersecurity. I do. Right. So uh, I'm a big William Gibson fan. Um, I, you know, I think he has some core ideas that are great, and I think they come there. I also like some Neil Stevenson stuff. Uh, you know, I just finished uh, Reemdy, which okay. is really fun, and I thought, I, 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 you know, there were some pretty accurate moments in there. I mean, it's good fiction, but it's still, it's still fun to read. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining our podcast. No problem. Thanks. Thanks again to Corey Doctorow for a great conversation, and to Dan Kaufman for joining us this month, and again to Arizona State University for sponsoring this episode. And please join us next month when we interview more of cybersecurity's biggest leaders and thinkers. Be sure to subscribe to us on New America's iTunes and SoundCloud at the Cybersecurity Podcast. I'm on Twitter at Peter W. Singer. And you can follow me at Sarah Sorcher. Sign up for Passcode at csmpasscode.com. This podcast was directed by John Williams and Amanda Gaines. Talk to you in a month. Thank you for listening to this podcast from New America and the Christian Science Monitor. This recording carries a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share alike, 4.0 international license. Music thanks to MK2 
for their songs, The Big Score, and Cold Killa. To learn more about Passcode by the Christian Science Monitor, please visit passcode.csmonitor.com. To learn more about New America, please visit newamerica.org.